Broadcasting live from the Pro Business Channel studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Capital Club Radio. Brought to you by Flock Specialty Finance. Please welcome your host, Chairman and CEO, Michael Flock. Thank you and good morning from Atlanta. We're really excited today to introduce Dan Campbell. He's an entrepreneur par excellence and partner at M South a leading private equity fund here in Atlanta. Dan has some terrific stories about his successful journey as a businessman and creative builder of businesses. It's interesting to note, however, that he started on a very traditional route, joining the corporate finance group of Pricewaterhouse, which led to a director of business planning for AHL Services, a security firm here in Atlanta, which led to the CEO job at the very young age of 28 at Source One Staffing in LA. That ultimately led to an opportunity to co-found Higher Dynamics with his college roommate, John Neff. I mean, what, a, what an American success story, starting something with your roommate in college. Uh, Dan and John grew the company's revenue at a 28% compounded annual growth rate over 15 years from 2000 to 2015 when they reached $100 million in revenue. That's, that's awesome. Uh, Dan is also active in the Young Presence organization and recently was past chairman. He's been recognized often as one of the 100 most influential people in the staffing industry. And Business to Business magazine named him Entrepreneur of the Year uh, here in Atlanta. Now, Dan is a terrific storyteller and, and loves to tell the story when at age five, his grandmother... <laughs> coached him to bend his knees when he jumped from a ledge. Can you imagine? Five years old, your grandmother is teaching how to jump. He put that advice to work when one afternoon, after being sent to his room, I guess for misbehaving, he jumped from the second-story window since it was his only option to escape. So Dan is never, never afraid of taking risks, even at the age of five. But... He was prepared. He knew how to bend his knees. So, Dan, tell our, our listeners, is this experience a metaphor for your approach to building businesses and how you invest? Uh, first of all, Michael, thanks for having me. And, uh, yes, and the short answer is that she was quite the woman, uh, Marie Campbell, lived to 99 years old and graduated 1923 from Slippery Rock University. And yeah, <laughs> oh, well, so she was a PE teacher okay. after that. And okay. so, yeah, that was uh, quite the experience at an early age and learned a lot from her in terms of it being a metaphor for life. It, first, I'm a constant learner, a lot of intellectual curiosity, and um, you always do want to make sure that uh, you have the opportunity to uh, be prepared and learn before you do uh, you take that leap. Before you jump. <laughs> before you jump. That's yeah. Right. Your parents must have been frightened that day when you... That's right. I think you said to me that your mother was in the kitchen and she saw you... She actually saw me come down <laughs> past the window and then within 30 minutes had me at the hospital uh, making sure, taking all the tests, making sure I was That's okay. Funny. But typical of who I am, I have high energy and I couldn't stay in my bed and so I would always roam around the hospital. Uh -huh. So they ended up giving me one of those glass covering cases uh, and I had to stay overnight so that I wouldn't roam the halls. 
So, so what happened the next time that you got sent to your room? Well, did, did your parents uh, lock the door and yeah, shut no, the windows? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they probably did lock the windows and, yeah, and not lock the door. So anyway, growing up, uh, I think one of your passions was sports. Right. You were a jock, and particularly basketball, I think, right? That's right. And uh, I think you told me that you missed the team the first try, right, in yeah. high school, even though you're six one, yeah. you know, and good shape uh but that was you said your first really major disappointment in, in life but you made it later how, how did you do that sure. and what was your the emotional path you got yeah well michael there? i um i moved around a lot as a kid from pittsburgh pennsylvania to connecticut to memphis Tennessee, to minnesota so when i moved to atlanta that was in ninth grade and every time i moved to a new state sports was kind of my connection to the new school so Right after I moved to Atlanta, I was hoping basketball and sports would be that, again, next connection in the new city. And I didn't make my ninth grade team, and so that was a disappointment to me. And uh, typical of, uh, I was very fortunate to have two very supportive parents. And my mm -hmm. father said, well, you can feel sorry for yourself, or I can take you out to the playground courts, down one by Georgia Tech, another at Wills Park. And this was obviously in the days before cell phones. And right. I'll come pick you up eight hours later. And, you know, I was, I was the, the only non-minority person playing on the court and uh, uh let's just say the first week i was the last guy chosen and Whoa. but Whoa. by the end of the summer I, was, I can't tell you i was the first guy chosen but i ended up getting to where i was the third or fourth person and uh picked on the team and so that really did kind of give me some confidence and some street cred if you will that if you work hard enough and toughen me up that the next year i did end up making the basketball team and went on to play college basketball as a result of that experience right. which wouldn't have happened without my dad's influence so your dad's influence was critical Absolutely. in teaching you what the perseverance and that's right it perseverance tenacity yeah, that's right yeah and work harder and in many cases i had certainly in the early part of my life and career was just working harder than uh -huh. maybe my peers and maybe i have to sacrifice some other things that you know maybe some of my so friends didn't have so, right so hard work is yeah. number one no doubt just, just working hard that's not right. giving up that's right um okay i think you also said though that uh hard work isn't the only thing right right, right. so what else in school what other lessons in school i know you you started actually you started your first business in high school and it was connected to sports that's it was right baseball cards that's right and you turned it into a business can you elaborate sure, on i'm happy to so again <laughs> being a sports fanatic i collected baseball cards as an early kid and then learned really in uh I had my first uh, table at a card show in high school, but it really started in seventh grade when um, at the that in that given year there were a bunch of rookies that came out like uh, the the ones today that are in the Hall of Fame or close to being in the Hall of Fame are Kirby Puckett and uh, Roger Clemens, and at the time before any of these players were proven you could buy lots of 100 for 20 cents a piece and so for every Kirby Puckett or Roger Clemens there was the Ron Romanek or Mark Langston or Al Nipper or Eric Davis that didn't make any money and so what was great is even if four of the five didn't work out and there was only one Kirby Puckett that did uh -huh. the Kirby Puckett would go from 20 cents a piece to up to four dollars wow. so for that same twenty dollars I had for each lot I might lose ten dollars in the ones that didn't work out but I ended up making three hundred and eighty dollars in the one that did work out so yeah, that was my early kind of why oh, I, I like this That's business awesome. thing. Yeah. yeah. So that, that complimented your allowance, I guess. That's right. 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 Yeah, I needed it. So you're already learning the importance of trading and investing right. and, and turning turning fun into a business. That's right. Yeah. 
That, that's, uh, that's terrific. Um, you know, you talk a lot about family and friendships and your long-term relationships in your life that also connected you, not just to, to sports, but to businesses. Um, how, comment some more about how that connected you and how that helped you build, whether it was Source One or High Dynamics, because I know, you know, you, you tell a really funny story about meeting your roommate. Right. college john neff who's very different than you right and then later the two of you start a business how how did that friendship then blossom into a sure. business partnership yeah i would certainly say at the core i'm very much a relationship oriented person so in the case of john neff while we were potluck freshman year roommates couldn't be more different without going into the details of that uh i knew right away that uh this was somebody that was going to be a close friend of mine and um uh, unlike myself, John never got a B in college. He graduated with a poor, perfect 4.0. Well, I okay. told him even in college and said, hey, down the road, I'd love for you to be my business partner. And so while I went through several different um, opportunities that progressed in my career, I stayed in touch with John and said, hey, remember, I, we're, we're going to go into business together. And so he spent eight years at KPMG. Was, okay. He was on the partner He was an track. accountant. He was an accountant. Okay. And uh, when the opportunity, when I was at Source One out in Los Angeles, my first opportunity to run a business, had an opportunity to buy to the offices and start Higher Dynamics. My first phone call was to John said, right. how would you like to do this? And it actually took me over a year to convince him that, you know, maybe the partner track at KPMG in the okay. right career. And it's the best single decision I ever made in my career was bringing John uh -huh. Neff on as a partner. Mm -hmm. So today we're still close friends. He's still at Higher Dynamics and continues to do a great job. Okay. Is he the CFO there? Or? He, he was the CFO um, until beginning in January. He was promoted to the COO, kept the title. We just promoted the guy underneath him to the okay. to the CFO. So okay. he's the, currently the COO of okay. Higher Dynamics. Okay. But is John then one of several friends or family that have been kind of mentors to you? Yeah, no so doubt. That, There's yeah. been a lot through the through the years. I would say I have two uncles on my mother's side when I started Higher Dynamics that were two of the family and friends investors okay. uh, that took a chance on me. Uh, I always look for mentors, still do to this age. I don't think you ever outgrow right. the need for mentors. And so, yeah, there's people along the way from a Bob Atkinson, who was a neighborhood family friend, to a David Gamzu, who I'd followed in my career from Pricewaterhouse to AHL Services and actually supported when I left AHL to start as a CEO at age 28, not really knowing what I was doing as a CEO who actually gave me, uh, uh, basically provided us the large client in Atlantis for us to open up an office. Uh, got Paul McKinnis, who's a longtime friend at corn Ferries, and then another mentor right. and I can go on and on. Well, AHL was one of the clients too, right? That's right. It's source yeah. one. Uh, it's, it's source, it's source one. It was actually, um, Inatrack was the name, but David had left to go from AHL to Inatrack. Yeah, I know Inatrack. Yeah. Okay. That was the, the new name then? Oh. No, it, it, it was a company. He left AHL to be the CFO of Inatrack. Okay. And so then at Inatrack, uh, I had um, introduced both David and the founder of that business, Scott Dorfman, to an opportunity out in Reno that was a staffing client of us at Source One. Okay. They said, Dan, we really appreciate it. What can we do okay. to return the favor? And I said, well, how about you provide it? Uh, 
I know you use $5 million plus of staffing in Atlanta. How about an opportunity there? And they said, no problem. You'll have a shot. And so that was our largest client that when we started Higher Dynamics was 70% of our business when we started the company. That's a lot of concentration. Yeah, yeah. So year (laughs) one was 70% within a track, a million in debt and 2 million in revenue. So it was a humble. But but those were almost friendships, right? They were absolutely friendships. That helped you build the business. So that's the link between you and the staffing or the that first staffing company which later correct was a bridge to higher dynamics that's exactly right right so that's fascinating so it's it's relationships not just transactions that, it is that, for me 100 percent. yeah I, I can relate to that that's our motto more than a transaction um any, anyway back to you then um so help us uh Step us through then this transition from sure. Source One. You're a 28 year old CEO. Right. Wow, that must have been quite a moment, and and I mean, it must have been exciting. But at the same time, did you have trepidations about it because you'd never managed? Right. No. Um, I, I I should say I did, but at the time I had done all right in my career, but didn't fully realize that I was over my head at the time, which okay. is why mentors certainly. Uh, are needed. So uh, the quick story I'll, I'll say there is that I went from a business at AHL Services, which was mostly security guards, kind of old school management style. While right. I had grown, Frank Argon, Frank Argon had, had yeah. grown really fast. It was um, ex-military, old school, ninety percent men, and I went to be the CEO of a company with ninety percent women in Southern California and tried the old school management style. Oh my god! Say, oh my god! You know, yelling ninety percent women. Yes, did, oh not, did not work so well. I had people crying and quitting, and I realized out oh, of no. self-preservation, if I didn't change my style, I deserved to get fired. So it was my first rude awakening that I didn't have a clue how to properly manage okay. people. And so over time. So that was your first encounter with some serious adversity oh, in no the organization. Doubt. Yes. Yeah. And, and so how did you deal with that? Yeah. I mean, Well, the first thing was just to recognize that I model myself based off of previous experiences that are, uh, are successful. But in the case of Source One, what I was modeling while the previous company was successful, it was successful in spite of its culture, not because of its culture. Oh, wow. And so that took me a little while to fully recognize. Culture should be a strategic opportunity or, or a competitive advantage. But you're saying in this case, it was a disadvantage. I, uh, yes, absolutely. It okay. was. Um, I'm a huge believer in culture and ever since that moment in 1999, it's, it's been, my focus has been, uh, culture and I believe you know, culture eats strategy. And, and the for irony of all this is that you've got terrific people skills. You're a fabulous networker. And yet, yet in that job, right. You said it was, you were a disaster, right? I was, I didn't have a good role model as it relates to that style of culture. So how does one change at 28 years yeah. old in that position? Did you? You had some coaching or what, what did you do? I mean, I, I, I reverted back to mentors I had had previous in my career, not necessarily at AHL, but other folks, whether um, you can go to um, several different people that helped me, okay. and including my father saying, hey, I, I'm, I'm struggling in this role. This is what I'm coming up against and got good advice. And it really was just learning through mistakes and eventually okay. Okay. developing that. I, uh-huh. I, I would say today I, I'm that it that is a strength i'm very good at reading people and i would say if it wasn't for that experience of being in the staffing business for the last 20 years uh-huh. i really developed my eq skills yeah. versus my iq skills and you know I, I i credit and i'm very thankful that i've been in a business for the last 20 years where it's majority women and have really provided that another skill. irony yeah another irony that you 
know, you took, you took that adversity and benefited from it because of what you learned in the process. No doubt. And it's interesting that you're in the, the people business with staffing and <laughs> it's, you turn that obstacle into really a plus, right? And, and, and all right. So you go from source one to higher dynamics. How was that transition? So the transition, when the economy started slowing down in 2001, the two of the owners of Source One wanted to retrench back to California. And we had an office in Reno and one in Atlanta. So I had the opportunity to say, no, I want to get back to Atlanta. How about you sell me these two offices? And so we agreed to effectively a million dollars for those two offices. And so as a 30-year-old kid, I now was trying to find a way to raise a million bucks you right. know, without a deep pockets. And so that was a combination of friends and family and an SBA loan. Right. Wow. Okay. And so then, all right, so you started higher dynamics in what was it? 2001. 2001. Right. And now John wasn't with you originally. You brought him in, right? I brought him in when we started higher dynamics in 2001. And he was at KPMG. Correct. Okay. Was that a hard sell? It was a hard sell. <laughs> Even though he was your one of your best friends and college roommate? Yes. He, he, you can probably relate to this, having a CFO that's very on the conservative side and risk-taking. And he thought it? you were probably crazy. Yes. Yeah. 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 But it, yeah, it took some convincing. And even when uh, we were, even after he had quit his job and was out helping do the due diligence, we had not yet uh, closed the transaction. And he was on his way as I was working on uh, getting set up to move to Atlanta, he actually went to the Source One office, and on his way to the office, got a call from our attorney, actually Phil Cooper at the time that you know, no who kidding. said, "Dan, yeah. uh, it looks like we have some big issues on the deal. Even though I thought we were close to the finish line, this deal might not happen." I had to call John. Oh, oh no! And he said, "Well, what am I supposed to do? I just quit my deal? job. I just quit my job. I'm driving to the office. I said, go to the Mexican Thanks, restaurant Dan. next door, <laughs> have a couple of margaritas, and I'll call you. Thank goodness, two hours later." it all worked out and uh, oh god got back that on was, track but that yeah that was hair raising. that was pretty hair raising especially for him Whoa. oh yeah because he's a buttoned up that's right and yeah very conservative he likes things nature. really neat and tidy that's and, right oh god uh auspicious beginning all right so the two of you got together he right. became cfo then correct right okay what was your vision for uh higher dynamics what were its yeah. goals and mission yeah. and yeah so I, I would say for for us it was one of the lessons, again, back to having from day one, we created a board of advisors of people that I had developed a relationship prior in my career that okay. were very helpful. And Separate one of, than a board of directors. Correct. More about, right. Correct. Okay. And so one of those board of advisors had really good advice, and that is, Dan, instead of trying to conquer the world, own your side of the street. So if you want to be the biggest and best in Atlanta, why don't you start with buying, being the best in Gwinnett County before Gwinnett County, why you own right. Duluth. And so it was basically own your side of the street strategy. And that was very helpful in terms of focus. And so we really started off by saying we want to be the number one staff company you'd refer to a friend in our small little area of Gwinnett County. And then build it out from there you actually it sounds counterintuitive but you can actually accelerate your growth the more you concentrate and focus on a smaller Uh at least for us a smaller geography initially initially yeah but you still believe in thinking big absolutely And, and so but we laid out at the same time said we wanted to go from being the best and largest in Gwinnett County to being the largest and best in Atlanta, which this last year, Higher Dynamics is now the largest staffing company in the Atlanta area to doing okay. the same thing. Now we're doing it. How, in the how big are they today? So today, roughly, it's $250 million with 40 uh-huh. plus offices. Wow. 40 plus. How many employees? 
Uh, we put 9,000 plus people to work every week with wow, over that's, 300 that's, full-time that's, employees. That's great. Yeah. Oh, that's terrific. You must be proud of the team. I am. And you're still, still, about the team. You're still chairman, right? And still executive chairman, still have ownership in the business. And yeah. It's, uh-huh. So that's fun. That's fun to see this thing grow after you leave and yeah. still be part of it. That's right. At least maybe not every day, but yeah, from a strategic oversight. Right. And well, I, I, one other thing I should mention from the very beginning that we figured out was that at least in staffing, you have three people you have to focus on. You have internal employees, you have your clients, and then right. you have the talent, the 9,000. We put people to work every week. Uh-huh. And so you have to determine what is the center of that strategy of those three contingents. And for us, the focus was internal employees. If we get that right, yeah. then the other two will fall into place. Uh, Fred Reichelt, who wrote many books, the number one question, loyalty effect, had a, it, I read his book, and one thing that really stuck with me was the fact that in the service industry, no company has ever proven you can maintain lot client loyalty without first having employer loyalty. Employee loyalty. So we were the only staffing company in the U.S. out of 10,000 that actually uh, paid uh, out of our, um, our management pool um, and it had a deferred comp plan that paid out solely based off what the retention rate was of our internal employees. Now that's cool. So, and so, what was the retention rate? So our, we got our retention rate up to the mid to high eighties, okay. about to 88% was kind okay. of the peak. And how did that compare competitively? So com- competitively, the average was around 60%. So. Whoa, that, that is terrific. Because at the end of the day, what clients and staffing companies want is know my business and be unique. And my my whole concept is how can you say you're going to find good people for your clients and retain them if you can't do it within you your own organization? And our, and our industry is notorious for having high turnover. So it that is. was our proof statement. That was, and that's my next question. So many staffing companies are commodities, right? Right. So how did you differentiate yourself? Yeah. I guess one is retention. Right. One is retention and focus on internal employees. If we have good employees, because at right. the end of the day. And that's, that's where the where culture comes. That's where the culture comes from. We also, versus many of our competitors that would have, every office would just be two or three people. Uh-huh. We would have offices that averaged 12 to 14 people. And what that allowed for was extended hours. Okay. So, and open on Saturday. So for us, it was more about, we want to, be able to attract the best talent to put on assignment of clients. And okay. how can you do that if you're having limited hours? Cause a lot of these folks are, have other jobs. So if we have extended mm-hmm. hours and we're open on Saturdays, I would tell right, you, right. Uh, I'm a big believer that in order to innovate and be successful in staffing, whoever's closest to the customer wins. Yep. Cause I don't think you can innovate if you're not close to the customer. So we created that's content so leadership events and, and that, yeah. yeah, please go ahead. Yeah. That's how you create the stickiness, right? Because right. they become part of your organization almost because then you know how they think and right. you coach them. Yeah. And, and so my next question was, so how specifically then do you translate the internal culture to an external value for the clients? Right. So, so to that very point, uh, the proof statement that we've done for now 12 years is there's a group out of um, Portland, Oregon for the staffing industry called um, Innovero now called clear, clearly rated that creates what the net promoter score is okay. for both clients and talent. And we're in the top 1% and the only staffing company in the Atlanta area that's been number one for all 12 years that they've had this survey. So that was a proof statement of look what other clients and talent. Um, and, and also I would tell you, we, one of our goals was to be a best place to work company in all the markets okay. we operate to prove we can attract and retain okay. employees. And what we would then go to the clients and say, uh, 
this is something we've done. If you can't pay above what the average wage is, you never then get there. you'll never get there unless you're willing to have a unique culture. And so we help them build. Okay. So, but compensation is number one for being the best place to work. Is that right? That's actually typically number three. Number three. Okay. What are the first two? Sure. The, the number one reason people leave an organization is their relationship with their immediate supervisor. Wow. That is interesting. So a lot of what we did, too, is we'd work with our clients on training the first-line managers, and it was generally those supervisors that didn't have a lot of good training that we said, that's where you got to really focus on. Oh, so that's a real value add, because yes. I don't think all staffing companies do no, that. I'd say the majority of them don't. Yeah, I, I've never heard of that, actually, before. Yeah. The ones that we used when I was at Dunham Bradstreet for our third-party collection agency, we used staffing companies, and none of them would go that far. Right. That's awesome. And we, we would actually put as a proof statement that it, we will do a pay for performance because generally speaking, staffing companies aren't aligned with what clients' interests are. Typically, if you have turnover, staffing companies will just find additional people to put on assignment versus right. what we said is unless our people are sticky, unless they stay, unless right. they go full time, right. you can pay us some on the back end based off a of pay for performance scale. Right. So what was the second attribute you said the first one was uh the immediate supervisor the third one was compensation what was the second differentiating the, the, the second one was the it was it, it depends on the poll you look at it's a combination of one of two things it's either um the the loc the 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 distance to, and location to the site and what the culture is of that organization it's not just the immediate su supervisor it's literally what is that culture and do you feel like you're more of an individual than just a number you know to the organization okay that was part of my next question because culture is a big word right it's a concept specifically right. it means you're treated as dan campbell not right. just as a white male who's 48 years old or that's right is that, is that what you mean yes so it's not just the identity it's the individual that's right I, it took me a while, one of my leadership takeaways, and I've learned over my career, is it's more important to connect with a person's heart than it is their head. And one thing staffing has taught me is that I started my career in finance. I'm now back in finance at the private equity firm. But I would tell you most finance people focus left brain, and staffing is much more right brain. Right brain. It's the much heart. More, it's the heart. Not the numbers. Right. I mean, I think that is so true myself. And yet, you know, and what I've noticed in customer service now and some of the hotels and restaurants, uh, both here in Atlanta and then at Sea Island, where we go a lot, they are very intent on calling you by your name right. and looking you in the eye. And just, a, well, a place that we both go to here in Buckhead, it's Mr. Flock and this and that, and they know exactly what your favorite table is and, your favorite drink, and then down at Sea Island at the Cloister, it's the same way. Makes a difference. And, and, you know, when they look you in the eye and they call you by your name and then say, you know, are you going to have your eggs benedict again this for breakfast? And, you know, right. it, it's that heart. That's where the heart comes in, and I really believe that. Yeah. And the irony is you make money, you make money that way That's because right. it creates the stickiness. They keep coming back. That's right. Uh, they keep coming back. So... Anyway, so you've, you've got a, a great balance of the left brain and, and the right brain, and I guess maybe that's part of your success. Yeah. And I would tell you, in, in building the culture, one of the things we figured out is that if you don't hire for the right culture, it doesn't matter what kind of culture you 
want to try to establish. So one of the things we did was we put, got our management team in a room and said, well, there's 28 attributes that are important, but we're, we're not leaving this room till we get it down to five attributes that regardless of skill set, you have to have to work as a full-time employee at Higher Dynamics. And then we got the second tier management. We came up with the same list of five. Okay. So we had a kind of five non-negotiable qualities that we look for in the person and in, in the person that really helped drive the culture. Okay. Wow. So you really integrated all these values with the hiring and the strategy right. and the team building. So it's, again, connecting the heart with the head and the, the numbers with the, the friendships. That's and right. it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful formula. So uh, as we wrap this up, what was your exit strategy? Did you have one or were you having so much fun that you just didn't want to sell and it didn't want to monetize? Because yeah. it really... You know, these people, I think that you're working with, were yeah. your friends, right. you know, how do you leave? Well, them? the mean, way I look at it, even though we did a transaction three and a half years ago, I still haven't exited. I mean, I'm still executive chairman. I'm still in right. But in terms of recapping or monetizing, uh, we, we knew roughly four and a half years ago, um, that we were looking for a, a CEO to bring on in the business because of some other commitments that I had. And I knew something would suffer if we didn't, didn't do that. And then the board basically came back and said, Dan, why don't we at least consider a transaction? So we, we, we hired an, an investment bank and we ran a limited process and ended up getting four offers and ended up going with M South a private equity group I'm right. now employed by. And, you know, we could have sold it. But, and the interesting thing about that is they weren't the highest valuation. Well, financial Buyers rarely are right. higher than strategic buyers. Yeah. So why did you go that way? I would say it's probably four or five reasons. First, it was a company that I had mutual friends, two management teams that had worked with multiple private equity groups and said, Dan, of all the groups we've worked with, we had the best experience with M South. And so that meant a lot to me. Back to relationships, triangulating. Triangulation, so, yeah, like yeah. we've discussed yeah. before. Yeah. So so that was a factor. Second, they were local. Third, they knew the staffing industry. They had experience and they were successful. Fourth is they were very growth oriented and that's what we were okay. looking for. We weren't looking and then and five of the six partners had all run businesses before. So okay. they weren't looking a financial engineer yeah and we felt like we could maintain the culture and they would just provide us with additional capital to accelerate that growth and that's been the case couldn't be happy and when you say growth it was revenue growth not just profit right correct so they wanted to come in and take this thing to a whole new level versus coming in and slash and burn and that's right and just grow your bottom line without growing the top line and our and our employees embraced the concept with the idea in mind that if we're growing faster, that's just more opportunities for them. And so majority of our promotions or in management level positions come from internal promotion versus hiring from the outside. Gotcha. So so then these the uh, partners at M South shared your vision and shared a lot of your values. They did, and shared the experience in the staffing industry. So. And they were local, so right. it, it was really a perfect fit. It was a very good fit. You could have your cake and eat it, too. That's right. And you remain as executive chairman, That's so right. you're not walking away 100%. My partner's That's a still dream there. come true. Yeah. And you still have your, your best friend and roommate there yeah. as well. So this is just a stepping stone to something different in the future. So now you're an investor at MSouth, partner there. Uh, where do you see yourself in the next five years? Where is there another company in your future, or...? Well, I would say my immediate focus certainly is uh, at M South, and it's been fun. I'm learning a ton, and it's a good group of guys, and we're growing that business up. We just launched our fourth fund, uh, um, our $940 million um, 
fun. And so we're, we just made our first investment a couple months ago. Um, and so that's my immediate focus. I do have some, um, investments as you would expect on the side. And I've enjoyed that. And, and again, people that I have a relationship I've been able to triangulate with that I've invested and supported. Uh, that's the immediate focus. I did take a year and a half off after did the transaction. And uh, that's about as much time as I can ever take off. That's a long time for yeah. someone as uh, energetic as you are. The, the, the interesting thing is I felt like I managed everybody's expectations well, except for my wife. She okay. was the one that basically said, you need to go back and get a job. I have my routine. That's funny. <laughs> it took about a year. And now she did when I finally joined him. So she's like, well, now I finally figured it out. You sure you want to go back and do this? I was like, yeah, I really do. <laughs> Well, good. Well, you're at the mid-century of your life, so it, you know I'm sure there's a sequel to this story someday, and we look forward to hearing it. Any parting words of wisdom for our listeners? Just that I appreciate, Michael, what you're doing and supporting the opportunity to hear different people's stories. I always learn from other people's stories and experience, and so I just encourage you to keep doing it and, and feel honored to be part of the show. Well, thank you. You're, you're one of uh, many uh, American success stories and unsung heroes, and we hope to uh, follow up sometime in the years ahead with the successes that I know you're going to achieve with uh, your fr friends and partners at M-South. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Dan Campbell. Okay. Thank you for joining Michael Flock and his guests on the Capital Club Radio Show. For more information on future interviews, please visit us at flockfinance.com. This program is brought to you by Flock Specialty Finance, where clients are provided knowledge and insights to help them grow their business in complex and risky markets. Flock is more than a transaction.